uh, the Lord has given us another opportunity to assemble and to worship together. I invite you to open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We'll be studying this chapter tonight. And you, of course, I'm sure immediately recognize this chapter as being the chapter in the Bible that deals with the subject of love. You know that life without love is both unnatural and it is also unbiblical. God designed us to be social creatures. We all have this desire to be cared for. We all have a desire for human touch, a desire for affection. We all have a desire to know that there are those around us who will help us and who will care for us and who will sacrifice for us and help us uh, help to meet our needs whenever those needs may arise. We have been created to desire those things, and whenever those things are missing, life is not what it should be. I read a story a number of years ago, and I'll admit to you that I'm not certain as to how factual every element of the story uh, is, but I do think that it illustrates the point very clearly, and so I'd like to relay it to you. There was a man by the name of Rudolf Hess who was third in command over the uh, Third Reich, and as the story goes, he was tried at Nuremberg for war crimes and sentenced to spend the rest of his life in prison. And for the last 20-something years of his life, he was the single solitary inmate in a prison that was designed to incarcerate over 600 inmates. He was allowed only one 30-minute visit per month, and the visitor had to be his wife or his son. They were not allowed to visit simultaneously, and while visiting, they could not touch him or they could not embrace him in any fashion at all. And as the story again concludes... It tells us that Hess had such a lack of affection and such a desire to have that affection that he was essentially an emotional wreck and ended his life in suicide. Again, life without love is unnatural and it's unbiblical. You stop and think about that for a moment, it might begin to explain some of the problems that exists so prominently in our world today. Life without love, that is biblical love. The kind of love that is sacrificial. The kind of love that always seeks the best interest of its object first. That's the key here. When we talk about life without love being unnatural and unbiblical, we're talking about real, genuine, sacrificial love. The kind of love that never puts itself first. Jesus said, do you remember in Matthew chapter 22, that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind and strength, and that we're to love our neighbor as ourself. That's genuine, sacrificial love. As we look at a world that is struggling, to say the least, It could be that perhaps a number of its problems could be explained simply because there is not enough of true, genuine, biblical love being put on display on a daily basis. And let me ask you a question. Who's going to correct that problem? 
Well, of course it's us. The only ones that have the ability to display this true love, the the love that God has expressed himself and the love that he commands of his people are, of course, his people. In fact, Jesus made this statement in John chapter 13. Jesus said, a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another as I have loved you. Now that's an interesting statement because as you study the Old Testament, you'll note that the Old Testament commanded the people of God to be loving. In fact, what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22 is a quotation of uh, the Shema, if you will, from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. It wasn't that the Old Testament said nothing about love, so how then can Jesus say it's new? The answer, of course, is that Jesus was the model of the kind of love that he was commanding, and Jesus illustrated and Jesus uh, epitomized love to a degree that humanity had never before seen. The Son of God coming down from heaven to give his life willingly as a sacrifice for all of mankind. So when Jesus says, a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another as I have loved you, the newness is in the fact that that we are imitating the sacrificial example of our Savior. And Jesus says that example, that sacrificial example, is what you're to display toward one another, but not just toward one another, toward all of humanity. He goes on in John chapter 13 and he says, And hereby shall all men know that you are my disciples, in that you love one another. Love has an evangelistic thrust. Have you ever considered that? Loving one another as children in the family of God is not just for the benefit of our brothers and sisters in the family of God. Jesus says that loving one another has an evangelistic benefit to it, that when the world sees this genuine sacrificial love displayed and put in action on a regular basis amongst God's people, that that in and of itself will be a form of letting them know we're the people of God and this is what real, genuine love is all about. Paul said we are to increase and abound in love, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse number 12. And so it is in our interest, if we're to increase and abound in love, it is in our interest if love has an evangelistic thrust, it is in our interest if we seek to impact this world for good to learn what it is to love. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 13. Just by way of overview this evening, we don't have the time to dig deep in this chapter, but what I'd like to do is I'd like to just survey what Paul says about genuine biblical love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, perhaps by way of reminder. First of all, I want you to notice as Paul introduces the chapter in the first three verses that he describes love as a more excellent way. He says, actually beginning in verse number 31 of chapter 12, that's really where the chapter is introduced, he says, earnestly desire the best gifts and yet I show you a more excellent way. Now, you may remember that in chapter 12, Paul has been describing the various spiritual gifts that belonged to the church in the first century. And it seems that there was some problem in the church at Corinth where they were 
fighting with one another because of their gifts. My gift is better than yours, particularly as it had to do with the gift of tongues. If a person had the ability to speak in tongues in Corinth, apparently they thought that they were the best of the best. And so this was causing problems and divisions within the body. And Paul says, you have to stop that. Now that he gets to chapter, the end of chapter 12, he's beginning to talk about love, of course. And part of the reason is because he wants them to see that, look, there's no point in you arguing about who has the best gift because these aren't going to last forever anyway. They're going to go away eventually. So, desire the best gifts and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. The grammar of that passage in chapter 12 and verse 31 means something like this. I want you to desire a way that stands out and stands above this other way. The other way is the spiritual gifts he's talking about in chapter 12. So, right at the beginning of this chapter, as he begins to introduce the concept of true love, what he's telling us is that love is like a journey of excellence that stands out and that stands above and beyond anything else. It is a very high bar, if you will, to which we are to aspire. And then he tells us in the first three, cha- the first three verses this. Number one, without love, I am nothing. He says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Without love, I am nothing. That's the idea. Verse number two, without love, I have nothing. And although he says, I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but not love, I have nothing. And then in verse number three, he says, without love, what I do means nothing. Although I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but I have not love, it profits me nothing. So without love, I am nothing, regardless of whatever my Uh, whatever my reputation may be or whatever power I may possess, Paul says it means nothing without love. Without love, 1 Corinthians 13, 2, I, I have nothing. Whatever abilities God may have blessed me with that I can use to the glory of God, if I'm exercising those abilities but I'm doing it unmotivated by love, then it's as if I have nothing. And verse 3, without it, whatever I do. Or you might say, whatever I give means nothing. I may give vast amounts of money that would support the work of God for decades. But if I give all of that and I'm not doing it motivated by genuine biblical love, then it's, nothing. it's as if I did nothing. It means nothing. That's his introduction. And now what he's going to do is he's going to look at love from the negative, that is what love is not, and then look at love from the positive, that is what it is. Listen to what he says. He says, verse number four, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Love is not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks not evil, does not rejoice in iniquity. Let's look at all of these different things. First of all, he says that love suffers long and is kind and it does not envy. 
Love suffering long or being long-suffering means literally that it is long or slow in coming to anger. Love does not envy, he says, which the word uh, envy has to do with boiling over with envy or with anger or with hatred. And so the idea is this, that love does not lash out or boil over with anger because it's lost its patience. That's the idea. Love does not, because it loses its patience, lash out at some object that it, or some person even that it happens to uh, find a disagreement with. Listen to Romans chapter 12, verses 19 to 21. This, I think, is a great illustration of this point. Romans chapter 12, verses 19 to 21. Paul says this, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves. But rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirsts, give him drink. For in so doing, you will heat coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. One of the most difficult things for a human being to do is to be mistreated by someone who is their enemy and absorb it. Just take it. Just take the wrong. And yet Jesus would say, you remember, if your enemy hits you on one cheek, what are you to do? Turn to him the other cheek. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, don't seek vengeance for yourself. Now, don't misunderstand. The Bible does not condemn what we would call self-defense. The Bible does not say Go and put yourself intentionally in a position to be physically abused. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about those situations in particular as it has to do with our Christian faith in which people are going to abuse us and people are going to treat us in ways that are inappropriate. Even within the body of Christ sometimes. You remember 1 Corinthians chapter 6, one of, I think, the most challenging principles in God's word. That's the chapter in which Paul condemns taking another brother to, the court, to, to, to a court of law. It's hard for us to imagine, but there were brethren in Corinth who were taking their brethren into court and suing them because some wrong had been committed. And here's the principle that Paul will, will display for them. He'll say, look, it is better to absorb the wrong for the kingdom's sake. Meaning if some person in the congregation comes and they do something that's just really awful to me. Maybe they've been gossiping about me or slandering or saying something that's wrong. If my going and trying to deal with that would result in a massive blow up, if my trying to right the wrong that's been done to me is going to result in more damage to the kingdom then better to suffer the wrong for the kingdom's sake. Absorb it is the idea. It's difficult for us to do. But Paul says, listen, love suffers long. It's long-suffering and it's kind and it doesn't envy. There's no selfish desire or ambition and it doesn't lash out because it loses its patience. Romans chapter 12. Do not seek vengeance but rather entrust that into the hands of God. Paul keeps going and he says, love does not, uh, love does not uh, parade itself or is, it is not puffed up. 
The King James Version will say, love does not vaunt itself or is not puffed up. The word puffed up means to be proud. And the word vaunt or parade means to allow yourself to be proud or to be vaunted or to be uplifted. And so the idea is that with love, we're not going to arrogantly draw attention to ourselves, nor are we going to allow others to stroke our ego. Remember Philippians 2 and verse 3, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. So true, genuine, biblical love humbly thinks about others, not self. And true, genuine, biblical love will never, in an egotistical way, force you to think about me. Because love is humble and love is not selfish. He goes on and he says that love does not behave itself rudely and it does not seek its own and uh, it's not provoked. The King James Version will say it does not behave itself unseemly or seeks not its own. The idea is that love inspires us to put ourselves aside and sacrificially place the needs of others ahead of our own feelings. That love considers the feelings of another and motivates us to sacrificially function according to those feelings. So the idea is that if I love you, I will sacrificially care about your feelings even more than my own. Love is not easily provoked. Provoke means to be aroused or irritated. Love thinks no evil. This might be my favorite in this whole list. Love, it, it means literally it doesn't take inventory. So the point is that love does not calculate or keep a running tally of all of the wrongs that another has caused you. Remember Matthew chapter 18. The disciples asked Jesus, how many times are we going to have to forgive our brother? Uh, up to seven times, and Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. And then he goes on and describes what needs to be done. If a brother has sinned against you, you need to go to him alone. If that doesn't work, you need to take two or three witnesses. If that doesn't work, you need to uh, take the elders, br uh, bring it before the church. But the idea is that whenever sin is committed, whenever a wrong is committed, as long as there is penitence, then we have uh, an obligation to forgive, provided there's penance. Love suffers long and it's kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Love is not puffed up. Love does not behave itself rudely. Love is not selfish. Love is not easily provoked. Love thinks no evil. That means that love is always going to think the best. That means unless there is some verified, adequate evidence to prove otherwise that I am always going to think the best of the words and of the actions and of the motive, motives of my brethren. That's something else sometimes that we struggle with. But that's what true, genuine love does. It always thinks the best in someone else. Let's move on to the positive. Paul tells us what love does not do, but then he tells us what it does do. He says it does not behave itself rudely. It does, uh, sorry, uh, it rejoices in truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. And it never fails. To bear all things is literally to cover or to protect. Remember 1 Peter 4 and verse number 8. 
Above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity will cover the multitude of sins. Real, genuine love causes us to do whatever it takes to protect each other from sin and from the consequences that are going to come from it. Jesus, or James said in James 5 and verse 20, Let him know that he which converts a sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. Love bears all things, but it also believes all things. Believing is trusting. We're going to give each other the benefit of the doubt. We're going to trust in one another, and we're going to place the best connotation possible on the actions and the words of other, others. We're going to be gracious instead of suspicious, and we're going to be careful instead of being critical. Love hopes all things. Hope, of course, is a desire, a, an expectation. We desire the best for and from one another. Love endures all things, meaning that it remains under or it bears the storm bravely and and calmly. Love never fails. The Bible tells us, the Bible tells us that we have an obligation to love one another. In fact, in 1 John chapter 3 and verse number 16, John, the apostle of love, will talk to us about our obligation to love one another. He'll tell us that we're to love one another even to the point of laying our lives down for each other. I want to leave you with these two points to think about. True, genuine, biblical love will transform for the good the church of Jesus Christ. When we truly love one another in the way that we should, then we're not going to have any problems serving and helping one another. When we truly love one another as we should, we're not going to have any problems being suspicious of one another or thinking evil of one another. We're not going to have any problems forgiving one another whenever we genuinely repent for whatever wrongs might have been committed. When we truly love one another, we will see a congregation individually and the church universally that is strong and that is bound by an unbreakable family tie. But let me suggest this also to you. Genuine love, real biblical love, will not only transform the congregation and the church for the better, but genuine love will help to bring about needed change and transformation in the world in which we live. I don't know about you, but I've spent a lot of time over the last weeks and months thinking about this world and the issues that we see and what can I as an individual do? What can we as the church do to try, even in a small way, to right some of the wrongs that we see in the world around us? My mind continues to go back to what Jesus said in John chapter 13. A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, and by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, in that you love one another. Peter will describe in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses uh, 11 and 12, what is defined as a beautiful life. He'll say in verse number 11, Dearly beloved, I beseech you, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. That's the negative. The idea is to stay away from the things that are going to, uh, that are going to lure us away from Christ. 
But then he'll say in verse number 12 that we are to live in such a way that our conduct is honest among the Gentiles. The language is strange a little bit, but the idea basically is live a beautiful life. Honest among the the Gentiles are a reference to those who are non-Christians. And the word honest has to do with beautiful. He's just talking about good old-fashioned Christian living. And he says the reason why you ought to do this is so that they may, as they scrutinize your work, as your good works, that they may glorify God in the day of visitation. And I take that to mean that as we live the Christian life in this world, there are people around that are going, they're, they're, they're watching, and they're going to scrutinize every thought and every word and every action. But if you're living genuinely a beautiful, faithful Christian life, they're not going to see discrepancies. They're not going to see hypocrisy, but they're going to see something that is real and genuine and meaningful. And when Peter says that they might glorify God in the visitation, the point is that there may be some that scrutinize and see this real, genuine, meaningful life, and it hits the light, it's, it flips the switch, and the light bulb turns on in their head, and they start to say, you know, I, I want to know what he knows, or I want to have what she has. And so it may be that by seeing Christianity on display, that that might be the thing that prompts some to ask questions that will lead to their obedience to the gospel. Now, here's another question. Peter will define this for us in the context. We're not looking at that tonight, but I think it's a good thing to think about as we close. If we're supposed to live a beautiful life in order to attract others to Christ, well, how do you define a beautiful life? How about love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself? How about genuine, sacrificial, biblical love that seeks the best interest of its object, not just in our family at home, not just in our church family here, but in every single person with whom we come in contact in this world. I would go so far as to say, and I think I would be safe in saying it, there are a number of people in the world in which we live that are longing longing to be loved and to see the kind of love on display that God describes in the pages of his word. Our job is simply just to do what the Lord says and to be the kind of loving people that God wants us to be. I think we're up to the task. The lesson is yours, and I hope that this has been helpful and hopefully it'll give us some things to think about as we're studying and praying in the week to come. We're going to offer the Lord's invitation now. There may be someone here tonight that has a need to respond, perhaps to become a Christian. If so, we stand ready and willing to help you in doing it. Maybe you are a Christian, though, and you're thinking about your life and some things that you'd like to change, and love is one of them. Maybe you say, you know, I've not been sacrificial and kind in, in the way that I've loved. I, I look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and that's not me. I need to make it right. We'd love to help you, love to pray for you, encourage you in whatever way we can. So we're going to sing the invitation song, and we invite you to come and let your need be known while we stand and sing.